0: Let me open with a word of prayer, just to situate you again. This is where we're at in our study. We're in Isaiah, class on the prophets, but we're starting into Isaiah today. So let's dive in. We're going to cover the first part of Isaiah today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time this morning of corporate worship. We thank you once again that you have given us uh, true saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that we were all like blind people, deaf people, dead people, and you raised us to life. You gave us eyes to see and ears to hear, uh, to understand the gospel, to see your glory in the face of Christ, to believe and trust in him for salvation. And we thank you that you've sealed us with your spirit, that he indwells us, that we now live because of the spirit and that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We thank you for the fact that you have won the victory over sin and death for us, and that even now we know that, as the prophet said, no weapon formed against us shall prosper, that we are more than conquerors through Christ. And we thank you that he is coming again to take us uh, to himself, to make us his bride forever. And we long for the day that he will return and say with the church throughout history, Come, Lord Jesus. And we pray this morning that as we continue our pilgrimage in this life and behind the veil of tears in this present evil age, and it's a struggle and it's difficult, Lord, we cling to your word and we pray that you would continue to feed and nourish us by your word as you fed the Israelites with manna from heaven in the desert as they traveled to the promised land. Nourish our soul, strengthen us, enable us to keep going in our in the fight of faith and in our journey to the heavenly country. We pray that you would give us a deeper knowledge of yourself, a deeper love for your son, that you would help us to be faithful to you, to him. And we pray that even this morning, that this would just be another day of Uh, worshiping you and being blessed in the process with a strengthening of our faith and a deepening of our knowledge of Christ. So please be with us even now and we pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's dive in today. Isaiah, we're going to cover some introductory matters just to begin with. First of all, just a note about the prominence of the book of Isaiah. It's the sixth longest book in the Bible in terms of Hebrew words, so not going by chapter divisions in your English Bible, but in terms of the actual length of the book. It's the third longest of all the prophetic books, cited in the New Testament more than any other Old Testament book, chock full of descriptions of the Messiah. So there's descriptions of the Messiah and his redemptive work all the way through, but Especially when you get to chapters 40 through 66, it just becomes the dominating theme. And so much of what we know, or of what the New Testament says of the Messiah, harkens back to Isaiah's oracles. It's uh, Just to think of it this way, often revelation, the, the giving of revelation throughout history, has been described as progressive revelation. In other words, if you started off with. You know, the revelation given to, for instance, Adam and Eve in the garden, the the promise of the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, and that was like a little candle being lighted. And then as you go through redemptive history, more and more revelation is added to that so that there's more and more light given, not only about God and his redemptive purposes, but particularly of the Messiah himself. You know, so you get to the prophecies of Jacob over his sons and you find out that he's a ruler that's going to come from the tribe of Judah and that all the peoples will be obedient to him. And you get to the oracle of Balaam and you find out that he's this great ruler from Judah and it speaks more about him. And then you get the types and shadows of the old covenant system, which are whether you know it or not, are teaching you about him, about sacrifice and priesthood and um deliverance from enemies and you find in David for instance this picture of what the messiah would be like and you find out that he will be from the house of David and then you get to the sort of end of the old covenant period and you have the oracles of the prophets and they are like the lights being turned on you know it's like moving from you know candlelight to electricity and you find out so much more about the Messiah than you did in times past. And then, of course, it goes dark for a period of time where no more revelation is given. And then you come to the New Testament, and it's like, you know, we went from, you know, the old school light bulbs to full-on, like, LED, like, lit up. And and actually, it'd be more like the sun actually rose, right? And now we see... Clearly, So, when you think of Isaiah, you could think of that, it that way. Perhaps no other book in the Old Testament gives us more light regarding the Messiah and His redemptive work to come than the book of Isaiah does. Also, the author, um, he's identified in the book as Isaiah the son of Amos. It's actually mentioned, ident- identified 16 times in the book. Those are just some of the the places where he is identified as the author. In terms of the date, what we have in the book of Isaiah, and this would be true of other prophetic books as well, is it's not like Isaiah sat down and just wrote this all the way through, right? You know, you think of Handel's Messiah, where supposedly he was shut up and for a period of time and wrote the entire Messiah all at once, <laughs> that's not what the book of isaiah is like what we have is a collection of his oracles right so these oracles were delivered through the prophet over a long period of time over decades 45 years so you know how long has john macarthur been pastoring does anyone know it's over 50 years now right okay so that's all the court over the course of his ministry he's You know, written a number of things, preached a number of sermons, and they they're collected in different places. Well, that's sort of what Isaiah is like. He he had a long tenure as a prophet. He endured through the reigns of many kings, beginning with Uzziah. Um, You remember his famous oracle in Isaiah six, right? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And then into Jotham, who only lasted for a couple of years. And then Ahaz, who of course was a notoriously wicked king. And then Hezekiah, who was a righteous king. And it seems that possibly he lasted through the reign of Hezekiah, beyond his death and into the reign of the most wicked king in Israel's history, who was Manasseh, a devastating reign. of He reigned longer than any other king. and And because of that seemed to do... The mo- more damage to the nation than any other king. Although, we know from at least one portion of scripture that it seems that when he was conquered and taken away uh, into in chains and imprisoned in a foreign country, he repented and the Lord restored him, which is interesting. But Isaiah prophesied through all of these, the reigns of all these kings for about 45 years. These are the dates. Remember, if you're in BC, you count downwards instead of upwards. So 740 to 695 BC would be a rough estimate. Um, Well, a fairly good estimate of when he reigned. um, Or, or, sorry, when he prophesied. Uh, Jewish and Christian tradition has said that he was sawn in two under the reign of King Manasseh. And uh, you can find this tradition in intertestamental Jewish literature, and then you can also find it perpetuated in Christian literature. Now, with all traditions, it's not inspired, so we're unsure if it was true. But it is interesting that in the book of Hebrews, if you look at Hebrews 11.37, the writer of Hebrews talks about people of faith in times past. And he says they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And um, there's multiple references in there that seem to clearly indicate that he's thinking of some of the prophets. Um, However, that particular reference, they were sawn into. It's sort of an odd description, and most commentators agree that that seems to be an allusion to this tradition that um, goes back to the intertestamental Jewish period at least, that said, suggested that he had been killed, that Isaiah had been killed in that way under the reign of the wicked king Manasseh. So, just an interesting little note about what may have been his fate. The location, while he did uh, minister during before the fall of the northern kingdom, which what which was the northern kingdom, Israel, Judah, in the south, he did minister before the Assyrians came and conquered the northern kingdom. Yet, his the location of his ministry was in the southern kingdom, and predict, predict. Particularly, he seems to have been centered in the city of Jerusalem. Um, we know at least that he was there for long periods of time. Whether he was restricted to that area, we're not sure, but he seems to have been in Jerusalem and Judea. By the way, all the basics of this information are found in the very first verse of the oracle, or of the book, where it says, "...the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem..." In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Okay, so just some introductory matters about Isaiah. Any questions on these before we sort of move forward here? All right, there is quite a bit of controversy in in, schol- in old Testament scholarship about the authorship of Isaiah. So I've I've just said that Isaiah, son of Amos, is the author, but. Uh, modern critical scholars have landed on the idea that they're fairly certain that the book wasn't entirely written by Isaiah. And I say modern critical approach to the authorship of Isaiah. These are mostly liberal scholars, but it has become such a widespread opinion, almost taken for granted in Old Testament scholarship, that it's worth talking about it for a second because you may hear about it. It's become consensus opinion among sort of the vast majority of New Testament scholars recognizing that evangelicals are just a small slice of that, and they they would not hold this opinion, but that the book was written by at least two authors, that chapters 1 through 39 were written by Isaiah, but chapters 40 through 66 were written by someone else after the exile. This supposed second author is often called Deutero-Isaiah, which just means second Isaiah. And many have suggested three or even more authors. In other words, chopping up the book in even more sections. The primary reason is because, well, there are a number of things. For instance, if you look in a concordance, you'll see that Isaiah is mentioned by name as the author of the oracles from chapters 1 through 39. And then he's no longer mentioned by name starting in chapter 40 through 66. Um, That's just one small thing. Also, chapters 40 through 66 assume the exile and begin speaking about how God was going to restore them out of exile. Now, if you're a liberal scholar and you don't believe that there is such a thing as a prophet who actually knew the future, you'd look at a text like that and these texts, which assume that the exile is already happening, you'd say, well, (laughs) that can't possibly have been written by Isaiah because that would require that he would know that the exile was going to take place, right? So much like the, the oracles of Daniel, which speak of so clearly of the coming kingdoms of Medo, of Greece and then Persia and Rome, Scholar, scholars say, well, that has to have been written by someone later on after Daniel, because Daniel couldn't have possibly known about the rise of those those empires. But so this is, you know, based on that sort of anti-supernatural bias, it's assumed that 40 through 66 was written by someone later, after the exile had taken place and sort of appended to the oracles of Isaiah. And also in order to support that, they've looked at and tried to identify all these differences between the two parts of the book, Um, differences in themes that are emphasized, different usage of vocabulary, different literary styles. And to support this, that it was actually written by someone else. Now, Um, Obviously, there's been a response by this to those who would hold that the entire book, the more conservative scholarship that would hold that the entire book is written by Isaiah. And that is that, and this is so true of so much of liberal scholarship, is that there's just simply no real evidence. There are concocted theories, and and then they look within the books to try to find reasons to support their, their ideas. But there's no real actual evidence. So for instance, we don't, there's no manuscripts, Hebrew manuscripts of Isaiah that would somehow reflect that a shorter version of the book and so that you could look at the manuscript tradition and go, oh yeah, you know, earlier manuscripts were shorter and then this was a, a added later on. There's no evidence of that at all in the manuscript tradition. All we have is, we have manuscripts that have the whole book. And it's all attributed to Isaiah. And so, if it is one book, um, well, then that superscription in, that we read in verse one, which ascribes the whole book to Isaiah, well, that becomes specific, significant. If there was any evidence that forty through sixty-six were added later on, well, then that that would be that would change things. But we just don't have any reason to believe that this isn't one book, a, a collection of all Isaiah's oracles. Also. You know, we don't have this supernatural bias. So we assume that, that as the scriptures indicate, God exists. He can inspire people to know the future because he plans the future. Um, he can reveal it to prophets and that he has. And so there would be no problem at all with Isaiah foreseeing the exile. And by the way, it's not just Isaiah. Jeremiah and other prophets would have foreseen it as well. Next, there are many themes and distinctive words and phrases that are shared by both parts of the book. So just as you could go back through and you know find, oh yeah, well there's a theme there's some themes that are addressed in 40 through 66 that aren't in that aren't in the 1 through 39. Yeah, and you could also find themes that are in 40 through 66 that are in one through thirty-nine. So in other words, all of this, you could go and find phrases and Words that are shared in both parts of the book. In other words, this isn't really a very strong argument at all. And by the way, that kind of stuff, if, if this was written over 45 years, right, by a single man, if, if I were to go back and to compare you know, your writings uh, now to things that you wrote 25 years ago, would there be differences in vocabulary and perhaps style and other things? Yeah, of course. So there's a sense of just artificiality with this type of argument that's really not in touch with reality. Also, there are other pre-exilic prophets, prophets that they ministered before the exile, which seem to allude to, even cite, portions of Isaiah 40 through 66. This is common. The oftentimes, prophets knew each other, and if you had a very important prophet, another prophet might be aware of their oracles, and actually cite some of their oracles. And uh, so if you have a prophet that ministered, another prophet that ministered before the exile, and he's citing Isaiah 40 through 66, well, that means that Isaiah forty three sixty six 66 must have been written before the exile, right? And then finally, the New Testament attributes parts of chapter 40 through 66 to Isaiah, Obviously the most what's the most famous chapter to us as Christians in this section? Isaiah fifty three. Well, in both John twelve thirty eight and Acts eight, twenty eight through thirty three, they cite Isaiah fifty three. Well, this of course is the famous passage of the Ethiopian eunuch, and he's reading it says he it says in the text that he's reading from the book of Isaiah, and he's reading Isaiah fifty three, and Philip comes along and explains it to him, right? Well, there, these are two places where they cite from this second part of the book and attribute it to Isaiah explicitly in the New Testament. So my point is, while this has become such a widespread and accepted view in Old Testament scholarship that, you know, Isaiah 40-66 through must not have been written by Isaiah, there is very good reason to reject that outright. Largely, it's based upon <laughs> just the idea that there's no way you could have foreseen the exile. Um, which is just, you know, it's the same thing people don't believe that Jesus couldn't have performed miracles or that God couldn't have created the world. Yeah, if you deny the existence of God and the biblical worldview outright and you have an anti-supernatural bias, well, then you're going to come up with stuff like this. Okay, any questions on the authorship question? Okay. Historical background to Isaiah's ministry. Just, I feel like it would be good to paint a little bit of a picture here before we dive into the actual oracles themselves. And it's, I think it's good for us just to realize that these books, the more that we have done, for instance, archaeological work, the more we recognize that these books are indeed rooted not in some kind of fairy tale history, but in the real history of the ancient Near East. And this is true of Isaiah. So the book itself indicates in 2 Kings fifteen through twenty nine, you see him identified by name that I, that uh, that Isaiah ministered toward the end of the great Assyrian Empire during the reign of a king named Tigath Tiglath Pileser the um, and that Israel and Syria had joined forces to attack Judah. So scholars have suggested that what has happened here is that the Assyrian empire, which was a, was, if you think of the great empires in the history of this part of the world, you had, obviously later on you have Rome and then the Medo-Persian empire before that, the the Rome, Greece, Medo-Persia, and the Babylonian empire. Well, prior to that, one of the great, greatest empires in that part of the world was the Assyrian empire and it lasted for centuries but toward the end as the empire was weakening you would have vassal nations begin to think well perhaps we can rebel and perhaps we can get our independence and what they wanted to do was band together to form coalitions so they'd have a better chance of rebelling and breaking away from the the imperial power well it seems that israel had joined forces with syria and wanted the southern kingdom of Judah to join with them in rebelling against the Assyrians, but Judah wouldn't do it. And so they joined forces to attack Judah. And you can see this laid out in Second Kings sixteen. In fact, it might be helpful for you to just turn to Second Kings sixteen because this, these chapters in Second Kings sixteen through eighteen, sort of set the historical background for uh, Isaiah's ministry. So you can see, for instance, verse 5, Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, kings of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz, the king of Judah, but could not conquer him. And so, these two kings lay siege to the southern kingdom of Judah. Isaiah, Ahaz, feels desperate. He wants to appeal to the Assyrians to deliver him and the southern kingdom of Judah from these two kings. And here's where you begin to see Isaiah's ministry in the come into the play. That he counsels Ahaz against this. Against seeking help from Assyria. By the way, where did the prophets always want the kings of Israel and Judah to seek help from? From the Lord, right? And so when they turned to foreign nations for help and played the political game, it was an act of unbelief and disobedience against God, right? And you can see all this, for instance, in Isaiah chapter 7 as well. But Ahaz doesn't listen to Isaiah. He seeks help from the king of Assyria. And oh, the king of Assyria helps, all right. He does come. And he eventually invades Israel the northern kingdom of Israel. He, first, he destroys the Syrians, and then he comes and invades the northern kingdom of Israel, and he takes the Israelites into exile. Now, of course, that's the political background. Spiritually, we know that the northern kingdom of Israel, God allowed them to be taken into exile by the Assyrians. Why? Because they'd rebelled against God, because they'd forsaken Him for idols, right? Right? And so, in Second Kings 17, you can see this is the, the, the tragic exile of the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel fell a few hundred years before, or a couple hundred years before, the southern kingdom fell. Now, notice there's a new king of Assyria, because when you are king of a great imperial, or a great empire, you oftentimes don't last very long. <laughs> Um, and you already have a new king here that is the one that invaded. Ahaz dies, so he's been delivered by the Assyrians. But Hezekiah becomes king of Judah, and it's during Hezekiah's reign, who, by the way, is a righteous king, that Assyria decides, you know what? We don't want to stop with the northern kingdom. We're going to come back and take the southern kingdom as well. And so in Second Kings 18 and 19, and these two texts here are parallel to one another. In other words, they both tell the same basic events. Isaiah 36 and 37 and 2nd Kings 18 and through 19 both give the count of this. Hezekiah is king. The Assyrians under a new king, Sennacherib come back. They invade the entire land of Judah, the southern kingdom. They basically conquer all of the of the fortified cities, and then they come to the capital, to Jerusalem, and they laid siege against it. And you remember this famous story. The Rabshakeh of Assyrians comes, and taunts the people, the, taunts the king, and taunts the people on the wall, and tells them, your God can't deliver you. And what does, who does Hezekiah go to, for counsel? He goes to the prophet Isaiah, and the prophet Isaiah tells him, hey, the Lord's going to deliver you. It seemed impossible. This was the great imperial power of the day. How could the little kingdom of Judah, with its nothing army, hold up in a siege, ever, you know, overcome the great, the mighty Assyrians? And we know that the Lord essentially sends the Assyrians away through a supernatural intervention. They go back to Assyria. King Sennacherib himself is killed. And the southern kingdom never falls to the Assyrian. Now, we also see in the background of Isaiah's reign that while Hezekiah did a good thing in terms of uh, seeking help from the Lord to deliver them, and Isaiah was involved with this, yet in the Middle East at that time, as I mentioned, Assyria was on the wane And uh, they were having vassal nations begin to try to break away. And as often happens, a new power was arising in Mesopotamia. And that was the Babylonians. Now, in the reign of Hezekiah, Babylon was a rising power. But at that point, it it, it didn't seem as if they were going to be able to overthrow the Assyrians. But they were a, a, a coalition power that... You know, people in the region thought perhaps could eventually overthrow the Assyrians, and so Hezekiah seems to have thrown his lot in with the Babylonians against the Assyrians. So there is these, this story in Second Kings twenty and Isaiah thirty nine, where you remember it. Babylonian emissaries came to the city of Jerusalem, and what did Hezekiah do? Showed them around, showed them all his storehouses and his armories, right? Because he's thinking, well, this is a potential ally, someone that could deliver us from the Assyrian uh, threat. Well, the prophet Isaiah, you remember, famously comes to him and says, guess what, Isaiah? The time is coming when these very Babylonians will come back and take the city into exile. And some of your own officials will be eunuchs in the court of Babylon, right? And then, of course, we, d- we find out that, in many ways, that's where the book of Daniel picks up. So, this is the sort of political, historical background to at least a good portion of, uh, he- of Isaiah's ministry. He was right in the thick of high-level, intense military and political goings on in the capital city of the southern kingdom of judah all right any questions about that before we move on okay now some general features about the book first obviously the book contains a collection of individual oracles and some narratives in other words some stories i mean i already mentioned to you there's a whole section in Isaiah where it tells the story of how God delivered them from the Assyrians. But but mostly a collection of oracles with some stories mixed in, written over a period of 45 years. You know, so you know today, when you have a famous person, right? Like, let's just say, right now, the banner of truth is going back and publishing the works of the Puritans. Well, these are works that... It's not like the Puritans sat down and wrote all of them all at one time, right? It's a collection, And that's what we have here. There's a collection of the oracles of the great prophet Isaiah. Now, there is... So, these oracles have been arranged in the book, right? So, someone had to decide how the oracles were going to be put together. Whether that was Isaiah himself or some later arranger. And there is some logic to the way that the oracles and the stories are arranged in the book. But, it's also true that... There's not always, it's not like we can, we can look at the book of Isaiah and say, oh yes, I see exactly why he put every oracle next to one another, starting with one all the way through chapter, through 66. No, there's not always a, you know, clear and important reason for the sequence of the oracles. And we certainly shouldn't think of the oracles in the book of Isaiah, or for instance, Jeremiah, similar, We shouldn't think of them as being ordered by way of chronology. In other words, that every oracle is, you know, is put where it is in the book in chronological sequence when the prophet delivered the oracle. No, there's other reasons why they're bunched together in different groups. Also, from the beginning to the end of the book, as you read through the book of Isaiah, you're going to see that it sort of oscillates between Oracles of judgment and oracles of redemption. So let's actually just look at a little section here. If you turn to Isaiah chapter 1, and you see the introduction to the book, who Isaiah was, when he ministered, and then you have the first oracle, and it's an oracle of judgment. The prophet is condemning the people of Israel for their sin. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey, its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand, right? And he goes on to condemn them for their immorality. He even calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. He basically says, "My people have become like the worst of all. They become like Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And then you get to you go through the oracle and you get to verse 27. And there's a switch, right? Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken altogether, and those who forsake the Lord shall be condemned, for they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired. And then he goes on in chapter 2 to give one of the great redemption oracles of the, of the prophets. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Right? So judgment oracle, redemption oracle. And then you get to verse 6 for you have rejected your people the house of Jacob for they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like Philistines and they strike hands with the children of foreigners and he's right back to another judgment oracle, right? Talks about how the land is filled with idols and they're proud and arrogant and sinful and then chapter 3 is more judgment Um, and he talks about how he's going to Bring destruction upon them. And then you get to chapter 4 verse 2 or verse 1 or sorry, yeah, verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. So we have another redemption oracle starting in chapter 4. And it talks about the Messiah and how um, the Lord will redeem Zion. And then in chapter 5, it's right back to a judgment oracle. So you see, the book sort of oscillates back and forth between oracles of judgment and oracles of redemption. In other words, that at least I would say that that's a general pattern through a good portion of the book. But... There is some broader trajectories in the book. So there is a general movement in the book from more of an emphasis upon judgment on Israel. So in other words, if you're in the earlier section of the book, um, you're going to find more judgment oracles than redemption oracles. But as you get toward the end of the book, you are going to find more emphasis upon redemption oracles than judgment oracles so i already mentioned as you get to chapters 40 through 66 now the oracles shift to almost predominantly redemption oracles with some judgment oracles mixed in so it is clear that the oracles have been arranged in such a way that you know it's more judgment at the beginning and then it moves toward more redemption at the end and of course when we talk about judgment and redemption oracles we recognize in the book of Isaiah that the nations are not left out of this. God is, after all, the God, not just of Israel, right? But of the whole world, of humanity. And going back to the Genesis, his plan of redemption was not just for the nation of Israel, right? But for a fallen human race. And so, there, when it comes to the book of Isaiah, you see oracles of judgment both upon Israel and the nations and you see oracles of redemption both for Israel and for the nations a remnant of both but a remnant of both believing Jews and believing Gentiles and that's there in the book alright any, uh, any questions about this slide the general features of Isaiah okay so just a broad overview of the book and then we'll dive into some more specific teaching of the book at the end of this class, and then we'll focus on the teaching of the book in next, the next class as well. Just a broad overview chapters 1 through 12. And if you wanted to, if you have your Bibles open, it's harder if you're on an electronic device, but as you flip through the, the first um, 12 oracles, you'll see that. The focus of these oracles is primarily upon the spiritual condition of Israel in Isaiah's day. So, the Lord is condemning the nation of Israel for its idolatry, for its immorality in its day, and prophesying that judgment is coming upon them, as well as a future redemption. You know, that's the the famous from Isaiah 11, the famous description of the lion a days coming when the lion will lay down with the lamb, right? So, but the focus is upon Israel in Isaiah's day. Now, in chapters 13 through 35, what you see is that the focus in the book shifts from a focus just upon Israel to what do you see when you start flipping through chapters 13 You start seeing Babylon listed. And uh, after that, Assyria. And after that, Philistia. And Moab. And chapter 16 or 17, Damascus, which is the capital of Syria. And then Cush down in North Africa. And Egypt, also in North Africa. And what you begin to see is that it broadens out in this section of the book to oracles which focus upon judgment on the nations, and then as you get toward the end of this section, you've gone—you know—you've gone sort of around the Middle East, starting with up in the north with, or out with Babylon and Assyria, and then coming down around the Horn with Cush and Egypt, and it's sort of been judgment on everyone around, and then it focuses in upon Israel, and there's like five or six oracles where the focus is upon the judgment that God is bringing upon Israel and scattered in with these judgment oracles are also oracles in which God gives a hope of future redemption and guess what just as there's judgment upon the nations the hope of future redemption is not only for Israel but also there's hope for the nations through Israel uh, that they too would share in the redemption that God was bringing upon his people Just as they would share in God's judgment, they would share in his redemption as well. Then you get to this section, 36 through 39, and as you look, you see the difference in the the way the text is formatted. You see it goes from poetry to straight-up prose. In other words, we've gone from poetic oracles to story. And you have chapters 36 through 39 really or a a narrative transition in the book where it tells the story of God's deliverance of Judah from Assyria. Um, But you get to the end of this section and that's when you have the Babylonian emissaries come and the prophet says, well, guess what? The exile is coming. The Babylonians are going to take you into exile. So this serves as a good transition in the book because it takes you from Israel's present state to and the uh, imminent exile that's coming, uh, destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah and exile, which we know happened in 586 BC. And then, after this, and again, when you look at chapters 40 through 66, you have oracles that now seem to shift their focus from Israel in in the present day and their condition in the present day and the judgment that was coming, the exile, now the focus shifts to what God was going to do for them on the other side of exile. Oracles of redemption that offered hope beyond the, out of the ashes of judgment, beyond the, the judgment that was coming upon them. And we don't know when all these oracles were delivered by Isaiah. I mean, it could be that chronologically some of these oracles were, de- were actually delivered early on. But in terms of how the book is arranged... Most of these oracles that anticipate a future redemption beyond the exile are put into this last section, chapters 40 through 66. So these oracles focus upon the glories of Israel's future redemption. This is where you have the famous servant songs, right? Where the Messiah comes into full view and he's described in various ways. This is also where you have the famous, uh, toward the end of the book, the famous uh, visions of the new heavens and the new earth. So, these emphasize redemption for Israel, and again, the nations, not in their entirety, but a remnant, through the Messiah, who is described primarily here as the servant of the Lord, whereas... In the earlier section when you saw redemptive redemption oracles the Messiah was described not so much as the servant of the Lord but as the branch from David's line as the davidic king and here he's the suffering servant or he is still a royal figure as well but he's the servant of the Lord and then all of these oracles like I said culminate in the vision of a glorious renewal that through the Messiah that will eventually lead to the renewal of all creation. Alright, so that's an overview of the book and kind of how the book is arranged in terms of the oracles. Any questions on that? Alright. What about the teaching of Isaiah? Well, I want to start with the theology proper of Isaiah. In other words, when you look at Isaiah, and this would be true of all the prophets, but you have this credible portrayal of Yahweh of the God the the tr- the God who has revealed himself in the Bible the God of Israel there's an emphasis in Isaiah's prophecy as there are in all the oracles of the fact that God is the only true God the one who is supreme over the universe because he is its creator so if you think of Isaiah 40 this magisterial book right where you have first of all This speaking to Israel, who is at this time pictured as being out in the wilderness, out in exile, and you have the Lord announcing comfort, 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 my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. In other words, the time of your punishment is over. And now I'm going to comfort you in the ashes of your destruction. And he talks about how he's going to redeem them. And then in order to basically assure them that he is able to do this, this is where you have the rest of the chapter talking about the greatness of Yahweh. That he is able to redeem them, as he says, because of how great he is. So, for instance, in verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he, Yahweh, takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon could not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? An idol? You know, you can just hear the laughter and ha, you know, a, a craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for its silver chains. In other words, you have to attach chains to an idol to keep it from falling over. <laughs> he who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness, and on and on. Do you see? And he's saying, This is your God, Israel. When I say I'm going to redeem you, I will redeem you. I am the, the God who is so great that all the nations of the earth are like nothing before me. Not that he doesn't care for them, but that in terms of their significance, their greatness, their insignificant relative to God. So he's, his glory, his greatness, his supremacy as creator is the only God, is emphasized in the book. He's also the ultimate sovereign over all Who orders history according to his purposes. So there is a great emphasis in in Isaiah of the sovereignty of God over all of human history. So, for instance, if you move forward to Isaiah chapter 45, and you look at this chapter, Isaiah 45 verses 5 through 10, he says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Verses 9 and 10. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, Why are you making me? Or what are you making? Or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, With what are you in labor? In other words, you see, he's, he's saying, I'm the creator. I'm the sovereign. I, I am the source of all. No one can speak back to me. This was Paul's argument in Romans 9, right? Shall the, potter say, shall the pot say to the potter, Why do you make me like this? Right? He's in control. He's the sovereign. He determines it all. If you move forward to chapter 46, verses 8-11, he says this, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying... My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. Right? I have spoken, verse 11, and I will bring it to pass. I have purpose, and I will do it. So he's the sovereign God who orders human history. That the rise and fall of nations, that both good things and bad things are subject to his eternal plan and perfect wise counsels for humanity and for the world, for the universe. Next, he is perhaps in this book more than any other, and I forget, I forgot to write down the number of times, but throughout this book, many, many times, Yahweh is identified as the Holy One or the Holy One of Israel. And really all of those designations of him seem to come back to and find their origin in Isaiah's encounter with the Lord that he describes in chapter 6, which you all are familiar with. But it, it seems to even have been God's call upon him to to prophetic ministry. Like, this was when it happened. This was when the Lord said, you know, I'm sending you out for this prophetic ministry. And it happened this way. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then we have later on, this call to ministry, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And he says, Here I am, send me. Yeah. And then throughout his oracles, he repeatedly identifies Yahweh as the Holy One, the one who is uncreated, who is set apart from his creation, who transcends his creation, who is perfectly pure, so pure in the glories of his being that we cannot stand before him as sinners, right? That we need to be. have our sin atoned for to relate to this holy God as we see that Isaiah did in verse 6. Next, Yahweh is the judge of all mankind who will judge the nations with perfect justice for their sins. So just to give you a taste of this, Isaiah chapter 14 verses 3 through 6, When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you are made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest. They break forth into singing. And he goes on to give this incredible oracle of how he was going to deliver people from the oppression of Babylon. So Babylon is the great power. You know, it'd be like if the Lord is speaking today to America. that's the great superpower in the world and saying, I'm going to break your staff and people are going to rejoice that they come out from under your oppression. I mean, obviously, if we were such a oppressive power as Babylon... And what we see is that's just one nation. As you go through, you see He judges all the nations of the world. In, in chapters 13 through 21, you have oracles against all the nations. Why? Because He is the Creator, and all mankind is accountable to Him, and they will all stand before Him, and He will bring judgment on them, and indeed He brings judgment on the nations in this life. He makes nations fall, and He makes them rise. Both individuals and entire nations. So Yahweh is revealed as the judge of all. And then finally, in sort of complement to this, because there's never a tension in any aspects of God's character, He's also revealed as a compassionate God. I love this in chapter 30, verse 18. We have this, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore He exalts Himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are they all those who wait for him. Or you have that part in Isaiah chapter 40. That famous passage where he describes himself as coming to rescue Judah. And he says this about them. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Right? So the one who measures the waters, the oceans, in the hollow of his hand, carries his people like a flock. The one who is so great that the nations are like a dust on the scales to him, he knows his people. He tenderly cares for them. He will redeem them. Uh, so he is a God who is compassionate. He's willing to forgive Chapter one verses eighteen through twenty is a is a great example of this. He's he's condemns Israel for their blatant idolatry and how the religious activity is an offense to them, because when they come before him they have injustice and bloodshed on their hands. And then in verse eighteen he says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your skins are sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So his people are wicked, desperately wicked, rebellious, but he appeals to them. I'm willing to forgive you. I'm willing to restore you. If you'll only listen. He's compassionate. He's merciful. He's gracious. And what we see in the book is that he doesn't actually wait for his people to repent, He takes action to bring them to a place where they will repent. He takes action to redeem them in a sovereign way by His power. So Isaiah chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and a smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For all over all the glory there will be a canopy, there will be a booth for shade by day and from heat. And for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. So you see here that the Lord declares that He will sovereignly redeem them, that He will remove their guilt by, through His own sovereign activity, and then He will restore them. And He uses that image of how He watched over Israel in the desert with the cloud by day and fire by night. And He says, He describes them as once more He's going to watch over them and protect them. Um, from all harm, right, and and it's not just him because when you or it's not just Israel because when you move to chapter eleven, you have this glorious picture of an, an expansive salvation, uh, where if he describes a shoot coming forth from the stump of Jesse, right, he describes the rise of the Messiah, and how he will be anointed by the Spirit, how he will judge the earth with equity, but notice. When you get down to the latter part of the chapter, look what it says. Uh, Verse 10, and we'll end here. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend His hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of His people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He shall raise a signal for the nations, and will assemble the banished of Israel, and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim, but they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hands against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels. And we will lead a people across in sandals. There will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. So this is like an expansive thing, right? There's going to be a judgment upon the wicked in Israel and a judgment upon the their enemies among the nations. And they're going to have victory over their enemies. But he's also going to be a signal to the nations. He's going to gather those that have been scattered among the nations, make them one people again. And also there's going to be a remnant who who flock to the Messiah out of the nations. So that you have this picture of the whole world, you know, the, the known world at that time, the description sort of centers around that part of the world, will be under the reign of the Messiah, and there will be peace, and there will be justice finally under his rule. And really that's our hope. You know, when I think of in my morning prayers... And I in my devotions, I often pray that prayer uh, in the Lord's prayer, "Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven right and I think to myself that that's now in a sense that God would cause the gospel to go forth and bring people into his kingdom, but it's also a future sense right <laughs> that what's our hope for this fallen world what's our hope for our own deliverance from our remaining corruption and all of its effects in our life what's our hope for this Fallen world, I guarantee you it's not political parties or particular rulers. It's the righteous rule of the Lord Jesus Christ being established in fullness upon the earth because his righteousness, his righteous rule, will finally lead to perfect justice and peace in the world. And that's what the prophet Isaiah portrays so gloriously in his oracles. All right, so that's just a little bit of the teaching about God next time we'll we'll finish up by looking at other things that, that uh, from the book of Isaiah that it teaches but let's close in prayer this morning father we thank you for the oracles of Isaiah that they've been preserved for us that we can read them and though Lord they're from a different a different period in history many centuries ago yet as we read them with our hearts sing as we read them because we know that he is speaking, he was speaking of things that we have now seen begin to come to pass with the arrival of the King, the servants of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, that the glories of which Isaiah spoke have begun to be fulfilled and will come to pass in full in when he returns. And Lord, we pray that as we walk through this book and even the rest of the prophets that you would reveal yourself to us that we would know you better that we would not be mired in small and pitiful thoughts about you that lead to debilitation in our life that foster our own pride and selfishness but that we would be humble before your awesome majesty and wonder at both your glory, your glorious justice and holiness as well as your compassion and mercy toward us. Lord, that we would be filled with wonder at your saving work and the descriptions of it that we read and that we would be filled with a greater trust in and love for the Lord Jesus Christ who is the Messiah and that we would have a better and more accurate view of ourselves and the depth of human sin and the awfulness of it before your holy character, of the wrath that it evokes from you justly and rightly, that we might come to appreciate the, the terrible nature of the condition of humanity, the awful judgment that is coming upon the world, that we might both be freshly amazed at the cross where the servant of the Lord took our stripes, bore our chastisement, And that we might also be more motivated to tell others of Him. That they too might escape the judgment that is coming. So Father, we just pray that You'd fill us, let Your Word dwell richly within us, even as we've dipped into it this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name, Amen.